if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. At most, there is only one Catholic priest for every 10 or 20,000 people in the United States. And so, most Americans only see Catholic priests as characters in TV shows or movies, or in the news when there's some scandal, which means that most people have a, a fuzzy impression of priests at best, and at worst, believe a lot of negative stereotypes or myths about them. So, we're doing an occasional series of episodes to break down the wall and discover just who Catholic priests are, how they're trained or formed, and what exactly they do. Recently, I had a great conversation with a new young priest who I think you're going to really enjoy meeting. But, to confess, I'm learning that catchy episode titles tend to catch listeners. And so, the title of this episode, Diary of a Young Priest, is a twist on the 1936 novel by the French writer Georges Bernanos, Diary of a Country Priest. But, truthfully, the young priest that you're about to meet isn't much like the country priest in Bernanos' story, other than that he's young and newly ordained. Father Nola Thalen grew up here in West Michigan and received his Master of Divinity degree at Mundelein Seminary, just outside of Chicago. We talked about how and when he realized that he had a calling to the priesthood and what his education and formation at the seminary was like. Father Noah shared what ordination to the priesthood means and what it means to him and his vision for the future of his ministry. Take a listen because I think you're going to be surprised and inspired by this new, young father. And if you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions, just send me an email, greg at consideringcatholicism.com. Well, welcome, Father Noah. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks, Greg. Uh, excited to have you kind of share a little bit of your story of coming into the priesthood, which I think is probably a little bit mysterious to most people, how, you know, how people become priests or how men become priests. I know that in the Protestant world that I came out of, I think there was a little bit more transparency because pastors were married, you knew them, their lives, I think, were a little bit more understandable to most people, whereas there's a little mystery associated with our priests, where they come from, how they're trained. And what we want to do, of course, is break that down a little bit, make that a little bit more relatable. Briefly, just lead off, tell us a little bit of your story. Where did you come from and uh, what kind of a kid were you? 
you know, how interested were you in religion? Were you a churchy kid? Yeah. Um, well, I think using the word churchy, I think that was definitely it, you know, being a churchy kid. Uh, I always describe it this way for my family. My mom worked at the church for a number of years at my home parish, St. Patrick's in Anthony Grand Haven. And I always felt like the parish was something like an extension of our family living room. So I just always felt comfortable there. And we'd spend, you know, a couple of days of the week there, different things, um, before and after CCD or whatever, and just hanging out. And so it was always home. Right. And, um, praise God that, I, you know, my story, I suppose is, is boring in this response, in this aspect that I, I've never been away from the church. There's never been a time where the Catholic church has not felt like home to me. And, um, very grateful that, but that, that started, um, at a very young age. And so was always very involved, um, in, in, church activities, loved being an altar server, loved being in, um, you know, religious formation and, and youth group all growing up. And so that was a, a big part of my story um, and, and how I ended up here. And I think being that churchy kid, um, it meant that a lot of, you know, ladies sitting behind us in the pew would, would kind of tap me on the shoulder before or after mass and would say things like, well, have you thought about becoming a priest? We thought about becoming a priest, right? And you heard this over and over again. And, you know, when you're a kid, when you're, um, you know, in second grade, right, that, that sounds great. That sounds really nice, you, the attention or whatever. And, you know, I took that to heart. You know, that was something my, my pastor growing up would often say too. And I still remember when I was in second grade, we, I, I don't know why, but a bunch of my extended family was over at the house and, we went to go to church and I think we thought there was going to be a Sunday evening mass and there wasn't. And so, um, we, we, you know, get back home and, um, you know, a bunch of my cousins, aunts and uncles around. And so I, I thought to myself, I think it was in second or third grade. I just received a children's missile after first communion. And I thought to myself, you know, we'll make it happen here. And so, and we were trying to kind of put together a mass, so to speak, a little play mass in uh, the upstairs of our house you know, delegating different, different jobs to, to cousins and altar servers and lectors and everything. And of course, gave a, uh, quite a fire and brimstone homily, you know, myself to, uh, to my family. And so I think when I was in that, uh, in that time in my life, you know, the priesthood was something that was attractive to me. And I really appreciated those suggestions from people and, and took them to heart. But I think also something changed. Um, and, uh, you know, I think as I grew older, as I considered, for example, celibacy, um, I grew to resent those, those comments and those suggestions and, and really pull away from this idea of becoming a priest. Again, all the while being, um, having really feeling at home in the church, um, having a strong faith, but, but really, you know, this priesthood thing, you give lip service to it because you're that churchy kid, but no way, not a chance. And, um, and so that was, that was what it was like a lot growing up for me, really, really all the way through high school. You know, I, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think some parents are afraid that if they push their kids too hard towards the church, um, they overemphasize it, that they'll, there'll be a little bit of a pushback or a blowback and they don't want kids to resent them sort of emphasizing church or whatever. Um, and yet then maybe they pull back too much. Right. And so interesting for you to talk about how 
you went through that moment of, hey, uh, am I sure, right? So when did that awareness that you might have a vocation, I mean, obviously people have been hinting that to you or suggesting that to you, but when did you begin to authentically wonder whether that was a real vocation? Sure. I, I do think it starts when I was a kid in those times. And um, I think I had a desire for the priesthood that was real then. Um, but I, I think the, the real wake-up call for me in terms of discernment happened. It was right, right after high school, going into college. I, went, I was going to Grand Valley or about to go to Grand Valley. And I went on this retreat. It was just a day-long retreat put on by then the seminarians of the diocese, all of whom are, are priests now. and um, I just remember, um, among other realizations, just coming to the sense that I hadn't asked Jesus what he wanted to do with my life, what he, what he wanted from me. I hadn't really opened up to, what, to his will. And um, that was a really striking realization. You know, I, you know, I was like, I saw myself as a, as, a, as a person of faith. This was very important to me. Um, but I was also realizing that I was really just doing my own will. And, um, within the context of the church, within the context of the faith. And, um, that was a very scary realization. And, uh, that kind of started in me, you know, kind of almost an existential crisis of like, you know, this is a a waking up, like, wow, have I really, have I been kind of faking it for so long? And, um, that, so that was that retreat, especially time, um, in prayer. I mean, I still remember being introduced to the liturgy of the hours on that retreat. Um, and it, it was just, it was, that was really transformational in my discernment in terms of at least opening the door, like, okay, you got to really discern this, um, not just pay lip service to it, but you really got to ask God what he wants from you. And if, if this is in his will. So not to belabor the point, but were there ever moments where you really doubted? I, I you know, I hear you talk about how you had this strong sense of desire to serve the church, the comfortableness of the church, maybe a few questions. But I think so many people, you talk about the existential crisis, so many people, the existential crisis goes the other way. Um, You know, a lot of times uh, kids grow up in the church. uh, Maybe they have a love for the Lord. uh, They hit teenage years, college years, and the existential crisis seems to tilt them the other direction, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of rebellion. Did you ever feel any of that? Yeah, maybe in, in some ways um, that rebellion, but not in, um, not in anything substantial. I think part of it's, you know, growing up in a time like this, you feel countercultural being, right. being faithful. And so right. that was that uh, it was kind of the rebellious thing to do in many ways. You know, I obviously with the support of my, my parents or whatever, so not rebelling against them, so to speak. But um, yeah, I, I never, so I never really had that. Um, maybe typical rebellious yeah. streak and, and no, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but <laughs> I, you know, just wondering, you know, for a lot of sure. people, they, they go through that moment of, of question and doubt, yeah. you know, and you even see that right in scripture, you see it in sort of a, a more mild way with an Isaiah who says, who me, uh, yeah. or a Joan who says, not me. Um, but a lot of times God sort of works through those things. And yeah. so it's great. So you, you kind of feel like there was this, um, you know, thread that ran through your life, sort of a straight line to, your vocation. And so you got an undergraduate degree at Grand Valley State University. And mm-hmm. what did you major in? I studied finance and economics. Okay. Um, and so I was a business student and then also I had a minor in philosophy. 
Now, a lot of our listeners are not Catholic and mm-hmm. are considering Catholicism, but you alluded to sort of the college seminary and the major seminary. Could you just explain for them a little bit? Um, it's sort of a two-tier seminary system in the Catholic church versus Protestant church where we had sort of a one-tier system. Could you maybe just unpack that for them? Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, so broadly speaking, there's what you call college seminaries and major seminaries. And so you know, the Catholic Church puts a high priority on philosophy. So all priests will get a degree in philosophy. And so there's really two different ways you can get this. So guys who enter seminary after high school or without completing college would enter a college seminary. And usually they're on college campuses and they would be a, a philosophy major for four years and then go to a major seminary. So that's the equivalent or is a bachelor's degree. Right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the other track for me, everyone does four years of theology, but the other track, which, which I went through is people who have already graduated college, already have a, a bachelor's, would enter uh, what's called pre-theology. So for me, it was two years of, of philosophy, you know, ma- earning a master's in, in philosophy to prepare for, for theology. So some guys have eight years and some guys have six years. And some of this is, is changing. There'll be another year added in, in these coming years. Um, but that's, that's another thing. <laughs> right, right, for sure. Well, let's talk about seminary a little bit. For a lot of our listeners who are Protestants or evangelicals, you know, they've got a, a, a mental picture of what you think seminary is like and what it is that you do there, what you're trained in. Well, I know that, for example, uh, coming from a, a Protestant evangelical standpoint, you know, our emphasis was on biblical training. So it was Hebrew. It was, we, had, we had to have two years of uh, college Greek before we could even get into the seminary. And then it was four years of Greek and then four years of Hebrew. But I don't think that's really what the emphasis is at our major seminaries. Could you just talk a little bit about what the curriculum is, what, what you're trained in, uh, how that looks? Sure. Well, you know, I know you'll have uh, Father Karchi on and, uh, you know, as a, as a biblical theologian himself, uh, I'm sure he, he wishes we had a little more um, Bible in our curriculum. But um, I think, so, you know, seminary is, is a lot like a graduate school or right. maybe something like that um, in terms of you have these, these classes. Um, I think what's maybe different than a lot of Protestant seminaries, um, you know, is first of all, I mean, the types of courses. So a lot more emphasis on, on theology. So I think one of Mundelein's strongest areas is dogmatic theology. Um, and obviously there's an emphasis on philosophy as well um, as a certain prerequisite to studying theology. Obviously things like sacramental theology. So there's these different, these different courses, right? right. And, and certainly there are biblical studies as well, but um, that's not the only thing. Yeah. I mean, we, we had in, in our background, we had almost no sacramental theology. Sure. I mean, I think in four, four years of quarters or whatever that is, you know, 16 or whatever it would be, or however many quarters that was, uh, I think we had one quarter, like one 10-week class in, in the sacraments. We only had two of them. So the emphasis was different. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I know that we felt, and I talked to a lot, I mean, not only my classmates, but even now as we're older and we sort of, you know, debrief and think back and everything. And when I talk to even younger guys that are still going through it now or coming out, is there is this giant disappointment. So I think we thought a lot of us had those experiences like you did in college. You know, we had been active in campus ministry groups. We had been active in campus crusade or intervarsity or whatever it is that we were in. 
and we got enthusiastic. We wanted to serve the Lord. We wanted to serve the church. We, you know, gone on retreats. We were excited. And we thought that when we got to seminary, it was going to be like this four-year retreat, you know, that was going to be this intense spiritual experience. And we got there and it was basically a master's program. It was a very academic experience. And I know that it was in many ways disappointing and, and, and a lot of guys didn't come out of it well. Um, they didn't feel that they were prepared. They feel like they learned things, but they weren't really prepared for ministry. Now, I don't know that that's what it was like for you, but I'm curious, talk about that a little bit. Did you, wh- what was that formation experience? What was that experiment experience like? And do you feel like it prepared you for ministry? Yeah. Um, I think disappointment's a good, good thing to address briefly in the sense that um, sometimes when um, I don't, I don't know how this, how this works or why this works the way, but sometimes when we're following the Lord and in and, and zeal, right. We mm-hmm. can kind of idealize places. Right. And so I think a lot of guys, even at Catholic seminaries face that same disappointment when they arrive, maybe they came from a lot of friends who came from very strong Catholic cultures and communities and they come to seminary and you, you're kind of like, what, what is this really like? You know, it's kind of, the, um, this wasn't, it wasn't like this in my visit, you know, and, um, and some of that's just normal. I think you have to, you have to, any, anyone has to work through, um, and realize that, uh, your visit experience is not always going to be the same thing. And that's, that's a healthy thing. I think one thing that's different about Catholic seminaries in this regard is we have what's, what do we call like the four dimensions of, of formation. So the academic being one of them, um, but the, the also the pastoral dimension, the spiritual dimension, and the human dimension, and these four things go together, um, and and they and they work together. So, you know, a lot of seminary is about, um, for really, for lack of a better wor- um, phrase, working on yourself, right? And we have um, a Mundelein uh, formation advisors. You have a, a person who's assigned to you, who's just helping you and coaching you through all the things that are coming up in your life, anything in any of those four dimensions, right? How are things going in your parish? How are things going in these classes? Um, what has prayer been like, et cetera? And then you also have a spiritual director that you meet with every two weeks to specifically process prayer in the spiritual dimension and as well as the human dimension as well. And so I think that um, maybe Catholic seminary is a more holistic formation experience, um, in that regard. And I think a lot of the goal of, um, seminary is about, um, forming a certain affective maturity in, in seminarians. And so I think you, um, and that's part of the reason there's a time, I mean, you know, having six years in seminary, eight years in seminary, you have a lot of space for prayer, um, for, for study. Sure. But that's, but that's not everything. And and certainly there's some guys who think, okay, we spent too much time in the books and not enough time in the right. pastoral, the practical. And I'm, I was one of the types who said, said we spent, we didn't spend enough time in the books, but, right. um, but that's, uh, that's uh, neither here nor there. Yeah. Yeah. The president of our seminary had said, if we trained you in everything that you would need to know, seminary would last 10 years. I mean, there's, they have to, you know, his whole thing was, we have to make it foundational. We have to teach yeah. you. So you have to learn how to learn. You have to learn how to how to do the work. But when you come out, that has to be a process of continuing education. You have to continue to learn. You have to continue to grow in your ministry. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Father Karchi had this phrase that he would, um, he would use, remember his first year, he says, um, you don't want to get straight A's in seminary, but flunk the priesthood, yeah, you know? And so um, this, uh, this sense of, okay, formation has to be bigger than, than, than grades. And I think that, that change, um, I mean, we, we live in a culture too, where, you know, maybe an academic culture where grades are everything, your GPA, um, you're trying to perform, right? And right. so part of seminary, I think too, for a lot of guys is saying, no, it's not about the grade you receive. Um, it's about learning how to learn. Right. And even like, I think, um, you know, I think for some guys, it's one of the things they can learn is when you don't do a homework assignment and you look like a fool in front of your, your teacher right. and your classmates, and okay, how do you process that? You know, how do you disappoint someone well, for example? Right. Um, cause that's going to happen as a priest. Yeah. And, uh, so it's a much more holistic experience, you know, seminaries. So what is it that they are in a sense looking for in you? I mean, because you're trying to cultivate habits, you're trying to cultivate habits of mind, habits of the heart, right? Habits of life. Yeah. I think the, the way of thinking about it that was always most helpful for me in seminary, um, Again, I spoke to these first two years of philosophy, of pre-theology, and then the four years of theology. And um, one, of the, one of the documents from Rome speaks of these different stages in, in seminary formation. And um, the, the first stage being one of discipleship, and a lot of it's about discernment, right? So um, is this what God's called me to? But I think, um, you know, seminary is not a place where you discern every day. It for those six years, otherwise you'd go mad, you'd go insane, right. you know, and um, you have to kind of look at the trend lines. Is this, is this kind of makes sense? And there's a certain um, presumption of permanence that you'll, you'll stay there unless you feel called out. And then following these kind of broader trend lines, what God's doing. But for me, um, there was a big, big change um, in between um, my first two years. And then that summer going into my third year, as I entered theology, first theology. And the church speaks of that is uh, moving from the discernment or the, you know, the um, discipleship stage to the configuration stage. And I think this is important, right? In the sense of uh, seminary is not about what you know or um, how much stuff you have in your head, how many tricks, um, what you know about managing a parish or any of these things, any of these practical skills. Um, or even being, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, perfect uh, human or something, right? It's about who you've become, right? And I think you, you talk about cultivating habits. And I think that's important, right? Because habits are these, this way in which um, by the things we do, we become someone, right? We become someone. That's how we understand habits in, in the classical, but also in the Catholic tradition. And so I think this is an important. and ultimately. At the ordination, right, one of the, one of the, the promises that, that, that the priest makes is to be configured to the mystery of the Lord's cross, right? So to take that on, to take on the identities of a priest, um, the identity of, of, of Christ, the, you know, the priest who speaks at the Mass in persona Christi Capitis, right, in the person of Christ the head. Well, how does that happen? You know, how does that happen? Surely through through grace, um, 
but also the, our, our cooperation with that over, over time in seminary. And, um, you know, I think it's important to say, you know, as, as um, so many people, this phrase you know, comes, comes around seminary circles, like, as the, per, as the man is as a seminarian, so he will be as a priest, right? And so, you know, even if, even if ordination is communicating graces through the sacrament of holy orders, it's to say, look, your, your, who you are as a person in seminary and your habits and your character, these things matter. And, and working these things out with the help of, of your brothers, um, with the help of your, your formators, um, your spiritual director, et cetera, um, it's important because seminary is about who you become. Well, and it's who you're becoming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it sets you on a trajectory. Yeah. You know, when you launch a, a golf ball or a football or, a, you know, whatever rocket, when you launch the trajectory of something, it's very hard to alter that trajectory in flight. Um, it's going to go where it's, it's pointed largely. Mm-hmm. And so getting it pointed in the right direction is huge. Right. So that brings us to ordination and, you know, you're launched in a sense out of the seminary. Uh, into ministry, and that was fairly recent for you within the last year or so. Talk about what that ordination process was like, uh, not only what happened and how it happens, but what it meant for you and how it sort of frames the beginning of your ministry career. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, it's, it's worth mentioning that my, um, you know, one of the things for, um, for listeners aren't familiar with the process before someone is ordained a priest, they're ordained a deacon. And usually um, in most places they spend about a year as a deacon before becoming a, before being ordained a priest. And these are, these are both sacraments of, of holy orders. Um, and, and just for our listeners, this is very different. Protestant church has deacons, but the function of a deacon uh, is different in the Protestant churches, especially the Reformational churches than it is in the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. So could you just briefly describe what being a deacon is or means? Sure. Yeah. So it still comes from the, I mean, it's the same word, right? From uh, diaconia, right? So it's this idea of servant, um, and especially serving at table and that in, in a Catholic context, that means, um, you know, serving at the, the altar, right? And, but it's also being a servant of the word. So the deacon proclaims the gospel at mass and, and can also, uh, can preach. Um, so that it's, Practically, what it means in, in Catholic parishes, but there's really two type, different types of deacons. There's permanent deacons. Um, so these are often, you know, men who at the end of their career or whatever, you know, whatever, um, maybe after their family has moved out, have decided, you know, that they're, they're called to something a little more in terms of their, their ministry or they're called to this certain type of service to be configured to Christ the servant. And... Um, so these are the permanent deacons, but there's also every priest, again, is ordained a deacon. So that's what we call the transitional diaconate. And so for me, um, that, that itself was an interesting experience because I was ordained a deacon during COVID. It was, you know, May of 2020. And so there were nine people in the church. And uh, so it was, but that was really, um, it was really just a powerful experience for me. And in there, you know, there's always trepidation. There's always concerns leading up to ordination, but it was just such a joyful, um, mass. And I, I joke people, um, you know, one of the parts of both the diaconate and priestly ordination is that someone will vest you in the vesture typical to the order. And, um, a priest friend of mine vested me as a deacon. And, um, in the process, somehow my stole, 
um, fell to my ankles while, while the Dalmatic, which is the other, other garb of a deacon, um, was being put on. And so I had this stole at my ankles. <laughs> and I remember like, there's just this kind of moment where I'm like trying to lift it up, like over, <laughs> I mean, that, which is not going to work, you know? And, um, and it was just, it was just a funny moment, oh, you funny. know, and it was an empty church. Right. But, um, it was the time people loved live streams. And so I had far <laughs> too many people watching and, uh, That's great. and, but it was, I, I tell people like that day was so beautiful that I could have tripped on that stole, you know, broken three teeth, teeth and gone to the ER immediately after that mass. And it still would have been like the best day of my life, you know, that's like, awesome. Cause it was just, it was just really beautiful. And there, there was a certain sense in, in these, in these ordinations for me, it was just kind of this, this focus of kind of making a gift of myself to the Lord and saying, especially um, at every ordination that the priest will, um, will lay down on, on the marble face down as the litany of the saints is, is sung. And, um, just to, especially in those moments, making an intentional gift of myself um, and saying, okay, Lord, you've got me, right? And um, like, here we are, you know, and, and I, I look forward to uh, this life as a, as a priest, you know, serving for you. So at the end of that year, you're, you're practically out, you're help assisting uh, with masses, you're preaching, you're doing these things, and you reach the end of that year, and now it's time for ordination into the priesthood. What was that like? And what was that moment after having that year of sort of, for lack of a better word, ramping up to it? Just describe that moment. Well, that was, uh, that year, I mean, it has its own difficulties, but, but I, I think one thing, one, one thing that's important for me, at least leading up to diaconate was much more nerve wracking. What people might not realize that the deacon makes, makes the promises. So I made a promise of celibacy, for example, on my diaconate ordination. And so, um, in some ways that year as a deacon feels a little bit like an engagement, you know, and where it's, you're oh, just, yeah. it's just building it, anticipation, yeah. you know, like I've made my promise. I know what's happening. This, this train only goes one direction, right. but I'm waiting. Right. And, uh, and so, but it was, so it was, the waiting was hard, but it was also just really, um, just this excitement, you know, leading up and just very, very excited for what, um, what was to come. There's always the craziness just like for a wedding planning, right. Um, of, you know, preparing for all the details of ordinations. Again, this is during COVID. We didn't know what this would look like. Um, how many people would be able to attend, um, the ordination, this number fluctuated a lot, you know, basically it was opened up two weeks before the ordination. So, um, but it, so it was just, it was just really good. Um, that whole process and the ordination weekend was just incredible, exhausting, but it, it was just incredible. Um, especially because things had just opened up with COVID and, um, it was a full cathedral, which is, um, you know, it was the first time I'd been in a full church in, you know, at that point in time, you know, a year and a half. Right. And so, um, it was just, uh, just very beautiful. And that, you know, there's something about that first morning when you wake up as a priest, you know, on that Sunday morning, ordination Saturday morning, and you wake up on Sunday morning, you're like, I'm a priest now? Like, I just woke up the same way. You know, like I'm putting on my shoes the same way. Um, everything is the same, but there's something very, very different. And, that, you know, in the Catholic language we use, uh, we talk about an ontological difference, right? Um, 
that there's there's a character that's communicated in the sacrament of holy orders, um, a priestly character. The person is is changed in a way that's um, that's unchangeable, <laughs> um, indelible, if you will. And uh, but the, the, you know when when that uh, the, the meta, metaphysical rubber meets the physical road, so to speak, when you wake up that morning, you're like, wow, things are really different. And um, but it was just beautiful. I think for me. One of the one of the highlights of that weekend was being able to celebrate my first mass in my home parish. And again, this this is a place that was home for me, and it always was home for me. And um, you know that parish had been through a lot and uh, has been through a lot, and it was just it felt like a celebration of the of the of the parish and the community. As far as I know, we haven't had a a priest from my my home parish, and and so it was. Um, it was just a really joyful, joyful weekend, and it, and it felt like a, a celebration of of the of the parish family. So now, earlier we were talking about that um, continuous learning, that sort of lifelong process of learning, and and subsequent to your ordination, you have had some already additional education. You want to talk about that a little bit? What what it was, and and in a sense, why? I mean, it goes to that trajectory of being a lifelong learner, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, during, uh, in, in January of my diaconate year, while I was at the seminary, the bishop asked me to, um, to, to return to Mundelein for another year after my ordination for some further studies. So it was a program that I started during my deacon year, during my last year at the seminary. And um, it was, it's, it's called a licentiate in, in sacred theology, or an STL. So this is a, a program, you know, all these, there's, Rome has its own set of accreditations and degrees, right? And um, so there's a degree, um, especially granted through the seminary, but, but in, in, it's a Roman degree, if you will, Vatican degree. Now the licentiate is roughly equivalent within the English system to a, an additional master's degree, correct? Yeah. It's somewhere between like a master's and a doctorate. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's so somewhere right. in there. It would, it would allow me to, um, to teach at a Catholic university, basically. Right. Um, so, so technically, when you graduated, like we graduated with a Master of Divinity, mm-hmm. and then a lot of guys went on and got a additional Master's of Theology with an emphasis, like, you know, an emphasis in doctrine or, you know, biblical studies or missiology or whatnot. So this is something like that, right? It's tacked on. W- was your degree technically a Master of Divinity that you graduate from? Correct. Yeah. With. And so, then, so then this licentiate would be you yeah. know, an additional. And what was your focus on that? Yeah. So it was in dogmatic theology. Um, so that's kind of my area. And then I wrote my, my thesis on, on John Henry Newman. So yeah. um, he's St. John Henry Newman, I should say, um, whose feast day we just celebrated yeah. a couple of days ago, who's, who's a great hero of mine. So Absolutely. Uh, so now you stand in a sense like on the five yard line, so to speak, of a ministry career, a life of ministry. Talk a little bit about that. And I think first, what is your vision for your ministry, your life in ministry, your life as a priest? What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to look like? What do you want when you look back someday for it to have been about? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a big question. Um, Maybe in some ways, I, I don't know. I mean, I think um, one of the beauties of the Catholic priesthood is I make this promise of obedience, right? And so when I, when I did lay down on the floor, right, uh, on, the, on the marble, um, you know, in many ways, I, 
put to death a lot of any, any of my own ambition or any of my own plans, right, for, for my priesthood, knowing that my priesthood's not my own, right? And um, so I think there's certainly things, um, you know, I, I think you think about uh, what kind of priest you want to be, right? And I think the word that comes to mind is just faithful, right? I want to be a faithful priest. And um, that's, uh, that's kind of, and, the, and a priest who, um, who loves his people, right? And uh, loves the Lord and a priest after the heart of the good shepherd, right? And so I think those are the things you think about. Those are the ideals, right? And Second Timothy 4, you want to be able to say you ran the race and fought the fight, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Now it's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. You know? Yeah, yeah. And just like, you know, you meet these priests, for example, at the, you know, at the end of their priesthood, and you're just like, man, that guy's got it. You know, that guy's got it. And, um, and so I think that's, you know, those are the things that, you, those are the ideals you strive for, right? And, but I think within the particularities of what that looks like, it's, you know, maybe even you said five yard line. I really feel more like it's a, it's like the, um, it's like a blue ocean, right? You know, right. and, and um, it's the, it's the, uh, there's no, there's no land in the horizon, so to speak. It's, it's, and I don't really know what many things will look like. And that's kind of the adventure of it, right? Um, right. And I think, I mean, maybe one practical way this would work. I, I still remember when I was in high school, my least favorite class, I hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it, was Spanish. And I was so bad at it. I was good at any class I wanted to be good at, but I could not do Spanish. And then through the providence of God, I ended up doing a lot of Spanish in seminary, you know, immersions, and then being assigned to St. Francis in, in Holland, you know, which has a very sizable Hispanic and Spanish speaking population. And I just pretty much routinely, pretty much every day, make a fool of myself in Spanish, you know? And I, I couldn't have predicted that, you know? I mean, I, I would have laughed at you if you told me I was going to be doing something like that. I was going to be preaching in Spanish. Like, what? You know, that's insane. And so there's a lot of particularities of, um, of the priesthood that are just, that are unforeseen. And I tell, I tell married couples this too, right? When, um, or people are preparing for marriage. Like you have no idea what you're saying right. yes to when you say yes right. on your in your wedding day. You have no idea whether it's a lot of kids or struggles with infertility or um, whether it's uh, kind of a quote unquote boring like you know run of the mill marriage or there's I mean, a lot of health problems or trials right. And so, well, what you're saying yes to is the commitment. Yeah, exactly. And you have no idea what life is going to throw at you, mm -hmm. but you're saying yes to the commitment. But be that as it may, there are things that when we stand on the, on that, like your, your analogy of the shore and, you know, we're departing on a ship and we don't know where it's going to go, but, you know, I, I think we always, we always have concerns. So I want to kind of land a little bit with, for you as a, as a young priest, as a obviously bright young priest, you must look at the world around us. You must look at the culture that we live in. You must look at the state of the church today, the state of the world. And what are the things that you are fearful or concerned about and the things that you want to lean into in terms of making a difference? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, fearful is probably the wrong word, but sure. you know, I think we, we have concerns. We can look at the world around us. We can look at the church. We can look at so many things and, you know, be aware of them and figure out how so, so what are the things that you really want to try to address or lean into in your ministry the years to come? Well, I think 
you know, the first thing in my mind is we, we have a pre-shortage, right? In our diocese and, um, we have a lot of seminarians, which is great. We've had them for a while, but you know, we, we talk about this process, this mysterious process of foreign priests, right? And it takes a while. And so they don't, uh, we don't just decide we're going to get more priests and, you know, vocations numbers being great. It actually is, it's a, you know, it takes a decade or two for that really to, 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 to feel it. It's like the old saying about the right time to plant an apple tree is 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I'm concerned about vocations and, and, um, I think again, our, our numbers are, are pretty good, but I think we need to keep praying for vocations and in, in our diocese. Um, cause I think the number of priests is it's, it's dwindling a lot of priests retiring. And I think that some of the, the models in which, how we've been doing things will have to adjust because of that. Um, and I think, um, you know, there's certain things I think, uh, you know, I, I go back to, there's a, um, book that's, uh, called from Christendom to apostolic mission. Right. And, um, and I think one of the things that we de- they describe in this book is that it needs to be more kind of creativity or creating new structures, new forms, um, of how to live faithfully in today's age. And I think that's true. And I think one of those is how priests are living, right. And how, um, um, and I think that that revolves around having more community among priests. And even as priests get more and more spread apart, more and more spread, then actually they need to be drawn together more and have stronger bonds of fraternity and make that more intentional. So that's a concern of mine. Um, and I think also just like, if you're going to become who you were meant to be, that happens in a communal context, not on a Lone Ranger way, you know, that just doesn't, that doesn't work. Um, so that's, that's a concern. I think, you know, in terms of, uh, just, you know, I think addressing what, what decline looks like in the church and, um, uh, cause the numbers don't look good on the externals, but also realizing that the Lord is, is still doing something. I think you can, you can step back and see this big picture and think, wow, this doesn't look great. But when you meet people who, where, where Christ is working in their lives and you think, and these problems just kind of melt away, honestly, as you think, this is good. This is good. What's in front of me. And, um, and this is why I think this, this measure of just being faithful as a priest is there. It's just like, you know, I go back to mother Teresa. God doesn't call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. And I think that's, 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 I guess the kind of priest I want to be in, um, Sure, we can we can look at the culture, we can look at the numbers, and we need to be sober when we do so, because um, they are sobering numbers. But but the um, but to also say, okay, Lord, are my faithful? Have I if I preach the truth in in love to people, um, and and it's like, do I really believe everything I'm saying? And um, and I do, <laughs> you know, and uh, I think so. Living into that into that fidelity you know, I have this, um, inscribed on, on my ring that I wear in my left, left hand, um, my ring finger, just like, just like a, a married man would. Right. And, um, it says ace telos, right. Which comes from John 13, one, Jesus loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. So we speak of this language of configuration, configuration to Christ, to his cross, right. The symbol of to the end, that's, that's the cross, right. Jesus loved his own to the end, to the extreme of, um, uh, you know, the most extreme point of suffering. He loved his own who, to the end. And so for me, being configured to Christ means 
it's not my fidelity that matters, but it's Christ's fidelity that matters. That's, that's what ultimately matters in this. And so, um, as we look out of the world and, and sure there's plenty of things that can be discouraging or whatever, but it's the Lord's faithful, you know, and the Lord's faithful. And, um, he's been very faithful to me. And, uh, you know, I, I suppose I, I hope that, um, in my own giving of myself to the Lord, um, I can be faithful to him. Father Noah, thank you so much for your time and for your transparency and sharing your, your thoughts and your feelings and your journey. God bless you. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think, greg at consideringcatholicism.com.